Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. Today's guest is John DeSantis. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. As an introduction to John, John grew up, well, all over the place. He moved every three years of his childhood. He eventually made his way to Brown University, where he met his wife, Susan. After finishing Brown and then Indiana University Business School, John started working for the portfolio management department of John Hancock, which later spun out to a more entrepreneurial firm called Independence. There, he raised the ranks before starting his own hedge fund, Civic Capital, focused on socially responsible investing. For over 30 years, John has also been the author of his annual report trivia book, where his global commentary each year informs hosts of readers on a diversity of topics ranging from diaper production in Japan, to the history of pathogens, to the most popular children's names. Today, John is an aspiring pizza chef, also known as Dad by his three children and Gramps by his three grandchildren. When not reading new annual reports and tinkering with his pizza oven, John fills his days outside in nature and enjoys spending time with his family. John, we look forward to speaking with you. Thanks. So John, despite being the originator of the original civic name, which we'll get to. Let's start during your childhood. Say you don't exactly have the typical answer from where are you from. So maybe you could share with us a little bit more about what you were up to when you were little. Well, I moved every three years of my life. My father worked for General Electric, and that was how one climbed the corporate ladder in those days. So many people could see that as disruptive to a childhood, but I enjoyed it. The experience was quite helpful for my development. And I think travel is a good thing. As you mentioned, though, it does make the when you grow up question problematic for me. I've been a sports fan all my life, a Boston sports fan, because I was born in Lynn, Mass. And a lot of our moves were in the New England area. But we also moved to Puerto Rico and Indiana. And so it was a good variety. I now live in Rhode Island, which I think of as basically a suburb of Boston and one large playground, while the state's only something like 37 miles wide and 48 miles long. It has over 400 miles of coastline, which is totally fun to explore. So I'm enjoying where I'm at right now. And eventually you made your way, as Scott mentioned in his introduction to Brown, where you met your wife. What was the journey from childhood there? At the time, I finished my last two years of high school in Indiana. So the journey was 14-hour car ride to Providence and to Brown. I made it into Brown largely because I was applying from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I played sports. So that got me in the door. And yeah, as you mentioned, I did meet my wife there. And it was just a totally fun experience. We actually got married while I was in business school back at Indiana University. And in many ways, we grew up together. So it's kind of fun to have that connection. You and Susan are both from Italian families. 
how did that experience growing up and having your grandparents be immigrants, how did that inform some of your work ethic or your bond with Susan? Well, first off, the food is pretty darn good. But more importantly, yeah, growing up with grandparents who all immigrated from Southern Italy, there was an appreciation for a work ethic. And that was very helpful for me to understand focus on things that you want in life requires a little bit of effort. It's not just handed to you. So that was very helpful. I guess all the family life made it easier having cultural backgrounds that were very similar. But on the work in my career, I do think that it was very helpful having grandparents who took big risks to come over and create a new life in a new land. Certainly, as we already talked about, moving every three years of my life, the move aspect wasn't all that new to me, but the uh, how do you start a life and how do you grow was very helpful for me when I started out in a new career. Nobody in my family or background had gone into the investment management business before, so that was totally new field, nobody to rely on in terms of advice and so on, but I didn't need it. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And you just get up and do it. The immigrant work ethic is certainly a propellant for many careers. I wondered, John, because a lot of what we talk about in these conversations is the civic impact that our guests' careers have had. I wonder if at this point in your trajectory, when you were looking for your first job after business school, if you then yet had an inkling of the socially responsible tilt that your career was going to take, or if you wanted it to go in that direction, or if at that time it was put your head down and get a start because I know later in this conversation, we'll explore that part of your work a little bit more. But I wonder how that fits in at the outset and tell us more about how you got your foot in the door professionally. To answer your first part of the question, I don't really think there was much of a civic-minded stimulus to my job search. My job search was basically getting a job in a field that I had studied for and was prepared for. So that was the start. The civic aspect followed later in my career. I'm really big on eliminating things that you don't want to do in order to pick what you do want to do. So in large part, that was also defining for me in terms of getting into the career. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be this. I didn't want to be that. I wanted to make money. And I enjoyed numbers and finance. And yet I didn't want to apply finance at a corporate setting doing cost analysis and stuff that sounded so much more interesting to apply it in the investment field. And then well, I didn't want to go to New York. I didn't want to go to Chicago. I didn't want to work for a sell-side brokerage firm. I didn't want this. I didn't want that. I was just focused in on, oh, Boston's a really neat place. And by the way, I was born there, you know, and why don't I go there? So almost my entire search was focused on Boston. I took the perfunctory interviews in New York and Chicago, but mostly it was Boston. 
because I knew I'd be happy there personally, which makes professional life so much easier. So I guess that's really how I got into the field. And like you say, the civic part of it came later. So fast forward a little bit. So you joined John Hancock's investment subsidiary, which then became independent and rose the ranks pretty quickly there. Tell us a little bit about the experience of rising up and how it was working in the 80s and 90s when there was so much innovation in the investment world. And give us a little bit more perspective there. Well, I had the good fortune of entering the industry at a time where the industry was getting more and more quantitative and computers were hitting the scene. So I had a competitive advantage coming in because I was trained in modern portfolio theory that was totally still a new development within the industry. And I had computer skill set. So that helped me tremendously in my professional career because I joined a firm that quickly realized that their main skill set was in quantitative investment applications. And this might be interesting to you that it was basically how I started developing the annual report trivia. Because at the age of 29, I was promoted to being the director of equity research at a firm that was managing you know, billions of dollars of assets, I had 15 research analysts reporting to me, all who were older than me and much more experienced. And suddenly I was in charge of their performance reviews and I was their boss. And so how was I going to do that? And how was I going to evaluate somebody who had 20 years of experience following media companies or so on? And I came up with the discipline that I would tear apart and study the bellwether companies in industry so that I could really understand what an experienced research analyst in that field was doing. So I would read, for example, I'd read Coca-Cola's annual report and Pepsi's annual report. I couldn't read every annual report in the beverage field, but I made sure that I knew what was happening with Coke and with Pepsi. And when I would do that, in order to remember these major trends and be conversant and understand what the issues are, I would rely on simple ways of measuring it. And at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, Coca-Cola, for example, all you really had to know about their strategy was that the per capita consumption of soda in the U.S. was measured in gallons, and outside the U.S. it was measured in cans. And that's all you really had to know. And it made it simple. And I said, wow, this is really cool. I'll do this with all the companies. I'll read tons of annuals, and I will just remember this stuff, and it will give me greater insight to the performance and uh, background of the individuals that report to me. So I started it and it was mostly for my own benefit. And then it was kind of fun that I started sharing it just within the company and then with clients and prospects and so on. And I've been publishing it for a number of years. And it's a good discipline for understanding what's happening in the world 
And we all get carried away with information overload when in large part, many times, there's just one or two little trivia items that if you know and understand, it can add a lot of value to your insight. I think the firm put 15 research analysts under you who are more senior than you were. I don't think the strategy was all just because your trivia was interesting. Market value there as well. Tell us more about how you transitioned from that role into starting Civic Capital. Well, as I grew professionally, not only was I a director of research, but I started managing portfolios and I was a portfolio manager. And then I was the chief investment officer and stuff. So I was exposed to a lot of clients, a lot of people with money and the whole industry. And what I observed, even though our firm was not a socially responsible investing firm, we had an excellent track record performance-wise. And at the time, the socially responsible industry did not have good performance records. So a lot of the groups like religious groups, public plans, and so on, who are interested in social responsible investing, they came to us and asked us if we had managed portfolios for them. And since they were largely one-off type of situations where Catholics would have their own different definitions of things they didn't want to invest in versus the rabbis versus so on, I managed those because intellectually it was kind of fun and different. And also, parenthetically, I'll say it made my mother happy that I was doing all these religious things. But what I observed by being involved with these groups was that on the investment committees, they thought they were doing noble things. And yet, as an investment manager, I knew that their portfolios looked you know, 99 plus percent, the same as every other portfolio that we managed. And we wouldn't own Philip Morris or tobacco stocks, for example. But yeah, you can match the performance of the S&P pretty well without that. So it occurred to me that the social responsible investing field at the time was ripe for innovation, that the field was very, very good at identifying social causes and not as good on investment returns. Also, the field had a self-righteous attitude and it wasn't as professionally managed as I thought it would be. So there was some baggage in the field. So I thought it would be an interesting concept to get involved in the field in a professional way. Fortunately, at Independence, my partners in the parent company didn't really think it was a profitable pursuit. So I left the company and pursued it on my own. And the idea I had, the civic sort of name, was in part because the industry was stumbling around with what to call itself, socially responsible investing, ESG, impact investing, all sorts of names floating around out there with no common denominator. And I thought, well, I want to introduce the financial interest in a greater way than the social responsible field had done 
up till now, and I'll just marry it with a civic interest because companies, you know, I asserted that the real big winners in equity markets and companies have really been linked to companies that have solved problems of society or advanced society forward in some fashion. And that civic interest was something should be attracted to people for investment considerations. So if you can marry companies that look attractive in terms of making money with those that have a big impact on civic you know, moving society forward and have a good civic interest, you had a successful formula. And I still feel that way today. So that's the story. How do you feel about ESG and socially responsible investing being the thing today and over the past several years? Whereas when you started civic capital in the early 2000s, it was not as embraced. And I guess, how's your experience been seeing the evolution of American society and more global thinking on that issue? Oh, it's been totally fun. And I think it's still relatively early in the game and it's still being adopted. So it's fun to watch and to project and guess how it's going to play out going forward. And you're right. It was very early when I started on this path. In fact, I was laughing recently that somebody had reminded me that when I became chief investment officer at my firm, the first investment committee meeting I had was to focus on global weather change. I didn't use global climate change because that wasn't the buzzword at the time, but I did want to talk and make certain that professionally we were all aware of the risks, but more importantly, the opportunities from an investment standpoint with the global degradation of the environment and worldwide climate change and so on. So certainly that has sharpened up over the years. We have the buzzword, we have global climate change, we have countries all behind the pack, but it's still pretty early. So I am just looking at all the developments and there's a lot of money still to be made on that front. Well, in our discussions offline, John, and as a parent, even from your answering of a lot of these questions, you've identified yourself as an optimist by nature and not a warrior because so many could answer the climate change question or the evolution in thinking around social responsible with more negative tilt and a frustration on why aren't we there faster versus you're excited with the growth and even more optimistic for the future and see the opportunity and from an investing standpoint. I guess share with us a little bit more about how that attitude has informed your career and then your mindset today and how our listeners can perhaps learn a little bit more about that thinking to better inform their own happiness and how they evolve in their lives. Well, I do believe that I worry less than most people intellectually. I know that worrying isn't good for your health and that also worrying doesn't really change outcomes. So why don't we just stop there and say, well, why worry? But also I had the advantage of a career in investment management where avoiding getting down is sort of the key to career longevity and survival. So that's intrinsic to where I'm at. I must say some people think 
that being naive is how the below average warriors manage that feat. But I think I'll stick with my more flattering explanation. And I think it's an important discipline to weave into somebody's life. And this is not to say that I don't worry at all. It's just on a normal bell curve, I'm outside the norm. That's all I'm saying. I think it's a good skill set to have because think of all that stress that people have in their life. And that's one of the bad things of this COVID pandemic, but I won't go down that path. I think it helps too by having faith in yourself and confidence. And confidence is such a powerful force behind performance that even if you're just playing a mind game with yourself, that deep down, you know, you should be worrying. If you can convince your brain not to worry and to focus on the, yeah, you know, you're going to manage all right, you know, you're half the way there. So I don't know. It's just something that makes common sense to me. And I would encourage anybody who's falling down the worry path to kind of step back, breathe, and think about how unproductive that is. Does worrying about the tenderness of a pizza crust improve the quality of the output? Or how does that philosophy influence your day job these days? (laughs) That is funny. You're referring to my new pizza oven and my pizza cooking skill set, which again, yes, I should pay attention to the type of dough that I'm doing and the crust and all of that. But I have the confidence that the oven is just fabulous and the ingredients are tasty and the visual and the entertainment value of watching some middle-aged guy cook a pizza in two minutes in front of you and then take out this big rocker cutting tool and slicing the pizza. I know even if my crust is a little subpar, forget about it. The experience is just too good to miss and have another glass of wine or beer and all problems are solved. So why worry about that? Well, I'm sure it also helps that half the time your audience are uh, four-year-old and six-year-old <laughs> grandchildren who are just happy to see Gramps doing anything. Any perspective that you'd share at present of you now your role as a grandfather and also as a parent of how to take some of your more civic-minded views and your optimistic nature and how the next generation and generations to come could embrace that philosophy? Oh, sure. Because I think demographically, when you reach this point, and I'm 63 years old, these are the wisdom years. It sort of all comes together now. And it's really a who. And you think about it, since you raised the issue of grandchildren and how you influence them. At this point in my life, I've heard tons of stories about my parents' childhood. Obviously, I've lived my own childhood. I've parented three children through their childhood so that by the time you're dealing with grandkids, you kind of have the kid game well understood. And so the opportunity to implant some wisdom on these kids is enormous and doesn't really take much more skill than being there. And so 
Yes, I do look for opportunities to influence, influence in a self-discovery sort of way. And that's the fun aspect of this. So if you want to, you said environmental consciousness or how do you introduce civic-minded stuff to kids, the way you don't do it is to, in my opinion, anyway, is to mandate or discuss it or read them disciplines or instructions. But, you know, if you take them outside into nature and in the backyard and you look at the birds and, you know, suddenly there becomes an awareness, a self-discovery. So whatever you can do in a self-discovery sort of fashion, I think if I recall my Brown University days, the essays of Montaigne were all about that introducing and educating somebody on how to make sense as opposed to just force feeding them issues. So that's the approach that I use with the grandkids. And I think I've got a tremendous competitive advantages of being there for so many generations before that there's not much I've not seen in a four-year-old that I can't handle. Well, it's a lot of wisdom for us. And maybe part of that self-discovery for the grandkids in the coming years will be discovering the podcast that Grant's produced. And we hope that that will be inspiring. John, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, you're overly flattering and I hope it works. (laughs) 